This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today in Episode 8, we go back to a farmer you heard from earlier in this podcast series, Laverne Johnson. As you may recall, Laverne is being forced to plant soybeans instead of peas and lentils this year because of disease problems, mostly root rots. We further explore his situation before we talk to Dr. Mary Burroughs, extension plant pathologist at Montana State University. If you're new to Pulse Crops, they include crops such as field peas, chickpeas, and lentils. The show follows some of the Pulse Crop farmers through the growing season and dives into the research that's helping them through some of the challenges they face. We'll also talk to a number of industry stakeholders along the way. We begin today's episode with farmer Laverne Johnson that you heard from back in episode four. To refresh your memory, Laverne spent over 20 years, including peas and lentils, as part of his rotation. At the time, research um, was saying that peas and lentils, even though both pulse crops were affected by different diseases. So my rotation typically was Durham lentils, Durham peas. So two out of the four years I had Durham, and two out of the four years I had a pea and a lentil, which at the time we were thinking, okay, it's you know lentils once out of four years and peas once out of four years. And as time went on, and just probably in the last few years, you know, we're finding how similar peas and lentils were, you know, as far as disease issues. So I had a pretty tight rotation. Well, in most years, I've been growing safflower. So that extended the rotation out on a, a smaller portion of the farm. Mustard was occasionally in there, flax. But the bulk of the farm was a Durham lentil, Durham pea rotation. That rotation over the course of 20 plus years has allowed for a buildup in root rot diseases like Fusarium and Aphanomyces, which is our primary focus for today's episode. Unfortunately, with the presence he now has of these diseases, there are very few options for Laverne to try to control them. You know, the first thing we probably tried was some newer seed treatments which was ineffective. Foliar fungicide was ineffective. I did see some benefits from a fungicide treatment as far as the foliar diseases. But as far as the the root rots, the only management practice that I think I have going forward is lengthening out the rotation. And at the moment, it's become so widespread that I've decided to drop peas and lentils out of my rotation and replace it with soybeans. And the amount of time it's going to take before I can probably be successful with peas and lentils, again, is probably undetermined, but research probably more out of Canada, where they've had these pulse crops longer than we have, they're saying that you know it could be up to eight years especially for a phantomyces, to uh, be at levels low enough where pulses can be successful again. So I'm not sure when I'll be trying them again. Eight years is an awful long time to wait. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I may be trying a field or two before that time. But right now, the only management really is lengthening out your rotation. 
Now, hindsight is twenty twenty, as they say, and of course, if Laverne could go back and extend out his rotation to a minimum of four years between pulse crops, he surely would. However, at this point, Laverne says all he can do is wait for the disease to slowly go away without a pulse crop host. And he's hoping for further research into other control options to help both him and his neighbors, some of which are fighting similar problems. There is a few in this area. I was one of the first ones to get started, so I probably had peas and lentils in the rotation longer than most. But I'm finding out even those that started 10 years after I did, there's some of them that are saying the same thing. It's like, you know, I'm not having peas or lentils anymore. I'm just seeing too much disease. So, no, it isn't just me. I think just because of the length of time I've been in, and really in 25 years, when you think of that over a course of a farming career, <laughs> isn't very long for to go from being probably my most profitable crops to something that I'm having to eliminate that's relatively short. So I think if we continue to be in more of a wetter pattern than drier, that's where I would certainly encourage others to really consider the the length of time between the pulse crops. And, you know, if soybeans will work here, and chickpeas is another pulse crop that has its own issues as well, but both those do seem to be infected by different uh, root diseases. So they would be options to keep included in a pulse rotation and hopefully maintain you know, the pea and lentil options as well. It's obviously very difficult for Laverne to stop planting a crop that in many ways was so good to him for decades. I asked what he would miss most about growing peas and lentils if it did take eight years or more before he could return to them. Probably the, the thing that I'll miss this coming year is, you know, that was always the first crop to come off. So you generally, you know, that first week of August and some years, even the very end of July, you could start harvest. So you got some of it off early. and. I guess for some people, they didn't like lentils, you know, for having to get down on the ground. And, and they can, you get a wind or heavy rain, and they can be flat on the ground. And maybe that would be one thing I, I wouldn't miss. But in general, you know, when they're desiccated and dry, they went through the combine easy. So for the most part, I found them easy to harvest, early to harvest. And most years, they were one of the more profitable crops, so I guess I'll miss all those things. With Laverne's experiences in mind, we turn our attention now to Dr. Mary Burroughs to talk about seed treatments and control of aphanomyces in particular. Mary is an extension plant pathologist with Montana State University based in Bozeman. Right, so I have a split appointment. I am 80% extension, 20% research. So my main job is to address the needs of farmers. So I do applied research and extend the information we learn and the information from our neighboring states. So I, I network between the farmers and the university and all of the organizations that serve the farmers. So I'm just a, a translator. As part of those duties, I run the Scudder Diagnostic Laboratory. So we receive samples for diagnosis, plant diseases, insects, weeds, mushrooms, 
all that. And during the growing season, as I am diagnosing plants, I'm learning about what's happening in the state. So when root rot starts coming in or foliar diseases start coming in on a crop, I know it's an important problem. People are concerned about it. And if one person's submitting it, I know lots of other people have questions about it. So I will distribute what we call ag alerts. They're emailed, faxed, and texted alerts to growers how to recognize how to manage these diseases. So that notifies people, and then those alerts are shared pretty widely. So we've got about 1,000 subscribers via email, which is big for a state like Montana. And then text, I think we've got like 300 subscribers. And then we got 13 guys on fax. Every few years I email them, do you really still want me to fax this to you? And I get either a fax or an email back even that says, yes, please start, keep faxing me the alerts. So a, a lot of those um, are Hooterites who have limited access to technology. So we try to reach underserved audience. But your question was, what is the difference between extension and peer research, I think? And I, I guess the difference, the main difference is that I'm trying to serve the needs of growers and be that direct link. I caught up with Mary for this interview in February at the Pulse Crops Working Group meeting in Washington State. At that time, most of the questions she was getting from Pulse growers were about seed treatments. We have a table as part of the Pulse Crop Working Group that we keep updated with what are the registered products as far as fungicides for seed treatment and foliar. And I just updated those to the best of my knowledge. But those those are really good tools for growers thinking ahead to what they want to do this year. Um, they can look at that table and see what the product is, what crops the product is registered on, what the range of use rate is, and what pathogens it's labeled for. We don't have efficacy data for those products. Just the, getting those trials done is, is logistically challenging. And I've reached out to the Canadians, I've reached out to the Australians and all the Americans, and we just don't have a whole lot of data to put on those tables. So right now it's just registered products. But hopefully at the end of this big lentil seed treatment trial, four years, seven locations, hopefully get some good disease and can add some information to that table. It was kind of surprising to me that this efficacy data wasn't provided from the companies themselves. Mary says they do provide data, but it's not always sufficient. On the label, if they have it registered for a product, they have some data associated with that. It may not be on pea lentil chickpea. It may be on a legume of whatever that legume type is, and the company is willing to register it for that use. So we have what we call crop groups. And most of the labels are registered for a crop group, such as cereals or legumes or herbs or whatever the crop group is. And most of the uses can be translated very easily. All the residue data can be used for the multiple crops in that crop group. But it is up to the registrant whether they label it for a particular crop. And they may not label it for a particular crop if they have a trial that says it's phytotoxic or... You know, so you always have to read the label, especially within the pulse crops. You have to make sure it's registered on the pulse crop you're using it on because some products are not registered on, say, dry pea. It was labeled for fresh pea, but not dry pea. So you really have to read your labels every year because they do change. We have one seed treatment on the table this year, which I apparently didn't read closely enough, or maybe it was labeled on lentil last year and it's not labeled on lentil this year. You know, so we, we changed the table, but even if you get a table for me, you'd always, you really still always need to check your label. And then especially with company mergers, you get label changes because like a company X has a certain way. And so the 
chemical has changed. I had a problem with one company for years because they had the wrong species for the diseases listed. So I said, well, it's labeled for this, but that's not the species that causes disease on pulse crops. So is it still labeled? And it wasn't because on the label, it had the wrong species. As Mary said, reading the labels and understanding the right seed treatment for your situation is critical. This is especially important to get right because seed treatments are one of the very few tools farmers have to manage root rots. Yeah, seed treatments are critical for pulses. They're a big, juicy seed, and fungi love that. So pythia management in the early spring when it's cool, getting that crop out of the ground as healthy as possible, protection against the early season root rots, especially when there is moisture. And then we just kind of run out of management options later in the season because foliar fungicides don't translocate down to the roots. They will not protect the root. And I think this is where we can take some opportunities in the organic industry and combine conventional organic if we can find some of these products that have longer residual or are biological in nature or if we can enhance soil health somehow to help make the healthiest plant possible to resist these these pathogens, as well as combining all the best management practices, crop rotation, best adapted variety. We don't have any root rot resistance, but we can at least use the best adapted variety for our area. And then using a seed treatment and using these blends, these combination products, so you hit multiple targets. And every year you get a new product and it's the best thing ever, but they are improving over time. And there's some new fungicides that should be coming on the market in a few years that will help. But again, we have resistance and we have longevity issues. That's not going to change. Mary mentioned earlier the ag alerts that she sends out to farmers around Montana. I asked if she could maybe give more detail into the types of issues she's normally communicating about. We have we kind of have a seasonal progression. So I've got a series of ag alerts in my file, and it's amazing. Every year, the samples start coming in, and I go to my file to send an ag alert, and I look up the old one that I just want to update, and it's like the same day or within like two or three days. So you, you have seasonal progressions of diseases. So on the pulse crops, we'll get the damping off right away if we have some moisture. Otherwise, we'll get dry seed decay because the plants don't emerge. And then we'll get the cold damage and herbicide residual issues. And then in late May to early June, the plants will start growing and it'll get quiet for a while. And then right after 4th of July, we'll start getting the foliar diseases. So mostly ascochyta. And then we'll move into on lentil stymphalium blight on chickpea, probably botrytis, if we have some moisture. And then as it gets closer to harvest... Ascochyta will really take off, and then we'll run out of fungicide. We'll be too close to our pre-harvest intervals, and we'll try to decide between desiccating early and using a fungicide based on how many days to harvest the grower expects. And then it gets quiet, and I can go on vacation. Sounds like a very well-earned vacation. One of the big root rots that we're trying to manage with seed treatments and crop rotation is a phantomyces. It is one of the diseases that wreaked havoc on Laverne Johnson's farm that you heard about at the top of this episode. And Mary warns that a wet year with warm soils will mean seeing a lot more of phantomyces, especially where farmers have been growing pulses for an extended period of time. But how can growers make sure they catch a phantomyces as early as possible? It's hard. It looks like every other root rot if you're not knowing what you're looking for. So if they know what pythium looks like, they should be pretty suspicious. 
if you get water-soaked honey brown roots that strip off real easy, just kind of degrades the, the tissue. We say that you can strip the root so you pinch it and the cortex strips off the steel so you're left with a couple real tough threads of vascular tissue and all the soft root just peels off. And that's pretty diagnostic as well as, well as that honey brown color. The way you can first recognize it sometimes is the leaves are turning yellow from the ground up just prior to or around first flower. So when the soil temperatures are pretty warm. The hard part about aphanomyces management is that it prefers those warm soil temperatures. So if you have a seed treatment, even if it is effective against aphanomyces, it's not going to protect that long in the season. There's just not enough residual, not enough coverage on the root. So if a farmer is doing everything they can to extend their rotations between pulses and use proper seed treatments, and they still suspect they're starting to see an aphanomyces problem, what do they do next? The first step for IPM is identifying the pest. So send us a sample, send us it early. And if it's not early, if it's late and you suspect it might have been a problem, we can actually test the soil. So I have a graduate student, this is her last year, and she will do a bioassay to test grower's soil for aphanomyces. Um, and we were working on um, projects to determine the best sampling method because a lot of these soil-borne plant pathogens are very patchy in the field. So uh, she's been doing transects, and we need a gallon bag full of soil, and you can just contact me directly, and I'll give you instructions. And you can do it pretty much any time of year, but spring is really best. So as soon as it's thawed, get out there, um, take some shovels. We, I think we, I have instructions, and I send them out via Ag Alert to the Montana growers, but we do have permits to accept from other states within the continental U.S., so we could test other areas for aphanomyces as well. This ability to test sounds really important. I mean, especially for someone like Laverne Johnson, who will want to know if and or when his presence of aphanomyces might be low enough that he can consider planting pulses again. After knowing what you have, Mary shares some other recommendations of best practices for managing these root rots. Rotation, um, identifying the pathogen, using varieties, talking to your neighbors. Communication is really important for a lot of these diseases because once they build up in an area, it can be really difficult to manage. Also with the soil-borne pathogens that people don't think about is equipment movement and cleaning the equipment or doing your operations in an infested field last. There's one guy that contacted me last year and he said, well, my neighbors and I share a roller. Should I be cleaning it? And I said, yes, you should be. A lot of these root rots are often found near the field entry first because soil movement. So you, you have contaminated equipment, it moves into the soil, that soil gets knocked off as you're lowering your boom or whatever in the field. So the Canadians said that it was at the field entry and as you go right. But we actually don't see any bias in the left or the right as far as the transects. And then we also look for aphanomyces in the low spots because where the water collects or those drainage areas. This last year, following the drought of 2017, we found quite a bit of herbicide residual problems in pulses in Montana, and a lot of those could be associated with higher root rot levels, I think just because the plants were weaker. So I had one grower, and I uh, we were up there for identifying sites for a survey, and I asked the county agents to see if they had any root rot, and so one of the county agents contacted a grower, and we showed up, and he said, well, I feel pretty dumb for calling you because... It's not 
a root rot issue. He said he ran out of chemical the previous year, and there was, I think, three passes at the end of the field where he hadn't sprayed the herbicide, and down to the line, the plants look way better on the skip where he hadn't applied the herbicide. And we did look in and, and found root rot highly associated with the weakened plants, but not as much on the other side. So just the point being that there are a lot of factors at play in root rot, and not all of them are under our control. We can manage crop rotation. We can manage seed treatments to some effect. We can manage our varieties, even if there aren't, isn't much resistance. And we can manage our herbicides, and we can manage our other operations, including plant nutrition. But they all don't exist in a vacuum one, one by one. They all interact. So for a lot of root rots, we know that increased nitrogen levels result in increased disease. And that's true for viruses. It's true for foliar fungi. So more nitrogen isn't always better. Like for wheat streak, one of the management practices I recommend is if you see a yellow field, don't apply any more nitrogen because the mite that transmits the virus increases more rapidly on healthy plants, and it also increases more rapidly on wheat streak infected plants. So you're just making your problem worse if you apply nitrogen. So no more investments in an infected field if you have a, a suspicion that you have wheat streak. Get it diagnosed before you apply your nitrogen. Mary's work continues to prioritize these root rots, and she says it's going to take collaboration across research areas and across borders to try to find the best solutions for farmers. We did a pest management strategic plan, I think in 2017, and so we got growers and industry and researchers all in the same room, and we identified our research priorities for pea, lentil, and chickpea in the U.S., and root rot was the theme for um, pulses. We do have several projects going on. I strongly believe that prevention is the best medicine, and that can be a tough sell, but I'm trying to stay ahead of the growers and their needs so that by the time we have resistance to all the fungicides, we have other tools in place. Right now, I would like more monitoring tools for the soils. So aphanomyces root rot is an issue. It's widespread. We don't have the labor to sample the number of fields where I know it is. But if growers are curious about it, I would like to have the tools in hand to give them an answer. What Do I have a phantomyces or not? What level is it in my soil? What is the disease risk? I had the opportunity last year to go to Australia for three and a half months as part of a Fulbright, and I worked with the scientists down there. They have a system called Predict-A-B, where they do very intensive small soil cores, so 45 cores, uh, which is much more than a standard nutrient analysis. So it catches that ca that patchy pattern of soil-borne plant, and you take samples within the row to capture the soil-borne diseases. So you get um, half a kilogram of soil, they extract the DNA from that, and they have enough research that they can say you're at a high, medium, or low risk of disease given environmental conditions, conditions are favorable. So if a grower has a really hot aphanomyces field, he could say, well, I think it's going to rain this year. I'm not going to plant pea or, you know, make decisions based on the data from his field. Or even for cereals, I have a lot of crown rot in this field. Maybe I should rotate another year to a non-host of that. Or, you know, to give them some data behind our recommendations would be really, really nice. So I'm working with Alan McKay and the group down there to 
possibly get that system going in the United States. And there's some private labs here in the U.S., maybe in Canada, that we can work with. But not only to have the bad stuff, like what about the good stuff that's in my field? What what are the practices I've been doing that have been increasing my soil health? And what does soil health mean? Right. I don't know yeah. that right now. I'm not a soil health person, but I'm I'm looking for collaborators right now to help inform a larger project where we can all collaborate and possibly the Canadians as well. So we can get some answers for the growers on, on okay, here's your risk. You can make decisions based on that risk. Thank you so much to Dr. Mary Burroughs for being on the show and for her continued work in these areas. Thanks also to Laverne Johnson for sharing his experiences with pulses and these disease issues. Really appreciate both of you being a part of the Growing Pulse Crops podcast. We have a lot more great information coming your way throughout the 2020 growing season. Please subscribe and tell a friend who's also interested in Pulse Crops. You can find all of these episodes at our website, www.growingpulsecrops.com. This show is brought to you by the Pulse Crops Working Group with support from the North Central IPM Center. We're releasing two of these every month throughout the growing season, so we look forward to bringing you your next episode very soon. 